0: chapter 2, verse 1. This begins the second section under the first Roman numeral. This section details the coming of the Holy Spirit, which is the basis for the whole book of Acts. Without the indwelling of the Holy Spirit, the believers do not have the power nor the guidance to successfully accomplish the ministry of Yahweh. Now, when the day of Pentecost had come, they were all together in one place. So let's talk about Pentecost. In the first testament, in the book of Leviticus chapter 23 and then later in Deuteronomy, God details what he calls the seven festivals of Yahweh. And the seven festivals of Yahweh are festivals that every believer in the first testament under the Mosaic and Abrahamic covenants and every believer under in the second testament under the new covenant were to follow forever according to the words of God. There were four spring festivals That would foreshadow the first coming of Christ. And three fall festivals that would foreshadow the second coming of Christ. And the first one was called Passover. And Passover was celebrated on the 14th of Nisan, which was their seventh month in the Jewish calendar. And basically they would sacrifice a lamb on the first Passover ever in Exodus chapter 13. And the, 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 the coming out of Egypt, they would take the blood of the lamb, paint it on the doorposts, and the, the wrath of God would pass over every home, whether you were an Israelite or an Egyptian, and spare your firstborn from dying, so that you can come into the saving new community of God. This is how they got initiated, atoned into the new covenant community of God. And it didn't matter whether ethnicity you were, everybody who did it got that. And then the firstborn of every family then became the priests. Um, that would later change with the golden calf, but at that point they become the priests. Okay, So this basically represented the atonement of their sins where God's wrath would pass over them and they were no longer legally guilty under God's judgment for their sins of the law and that they can now dwell with God. The day after that, they would celebrate a seven-day festival called Unleavened Bread. And this is where they would basically bake all all their bread for an entire week without any yeast. And they would clean all the yeast or the leaven out of their home. And yeast represents sin or corruption and how it permeates and infiltrates everything and puffs you up like pride, so Mm to speak. And so as they remove the yeast, it would call them to repent. And so as they have now been atoned through Christ or atoned through the Lamb, they would then repent of their sins for the entire week. And then the Sunday after the the Passover, so about a few days later, they would then celebrate first fruits. And first fruits was where they would offer up the first of their barley harvest, and they would offer that to God. And then they would basically thank God for giving them the promised land where they could actually dwell with God physically through the Shekinah glory of God and be with him. And then they had a land. And then about 10 days after that festival, Fifty days after Passover, they would then celebrate Feast of Weeks. And this is where they would offer up the first fruits of their wheat harvest, and then they would thank God for the giving of the law. What would happen is that they, on Passover, sacrificed the lamb, they left Egypt, and then as they were leaving Egypt, they would be repenting of their sins through the unleavened bread festival. And then 50 days later, they were at Mount Sinai, and the, the law was spoken to them, and then carved onto two tablets by God's fire and given to Moses, and he brought them down. Christ literally fulfilled these on the exact day. Okay, on the 14th of Nisan, when everyone in Israel was sacrificing their lambs to celebrate Passover, Christ was dying on the cross as the sacrificial lamb. And then that led to a week of probably a lot of evaluation among the disciples. The road to Emmaus, we saw a lot of soul searching. When he appeared to them in the upper room, there's a lot of soul searching. This is the Feast of Unleavened Bread. And then, exactly the Sunday after Passover, on the exact date of first fruits, as God commanded thousands of years earlier in the book of Leviticus, Christ raised himself from the dead. And he became the first fruits from the grave. And Peter tells us in chapter 2. That Christ is the first fruits from the grave, and we will follow in our own resurrection one day, and so Christ literally fulfilled that festival. Now it's forty days later, about ten days away from Feast of Weeks, which at this time the disciple, the, the people, the Jews are now renaming Pentecost. Feast of Weeks turns into Pentecost because it's fifty days later, and Penta means fifty, and Cost means festival, so it's the festival of fifty. So 50 days later, they're now told, 40 days later, 10 days till Pentecost, to wait until the Holy Spirit comes. Now, if they were really truly connecting dots, and if maybe they didn't have a whirlwind of thoughts and emotions in their head, they'd be able to say, oh, we only have to wait 10 days, because Christ literally died on Passover, and he literally was resurrected on the exact day of first fruits, so maybe something's literally going to happen on the exact day of Pentecost. Was somebody making that connection? Don't know. Is it obvious that a lot of people were? No, not really, because I think they would have said something here. The idea here is that they're waiting for Pentecost, and now Pentecost is coming. Luke is emphasizing this Pentecost because in hindsight, Luke can say, look, The dots are getting connected. Christ is literally going to do something on this day, just like he did those other days. And so suddenly a sound like a violent wind blowing came from heaven and filled the entire house where they were sitting. And tongues spreading out like fire appeared to them and came to rest on each one of them. And all of them were filled with the Holy Spirit, and they began to speak in other languages as the Spirit enabled them. Okay, now there's a lot to unpack here. There's a lot to unpack here. First, we're told that suddenly there was a wind and a fire that comes into the room. Wind and fire, first of all, is untamable. It's uncontrollable. They're the elements that we do not fully understand. We cannot see it, we cannot control them, and they're untamable. But the word wind has been used throughout the First Testament. In the very beginning of creation... Creation is described as a formless and empty place that is dark and a watery, chaotic abyss. Life cannot thrive where there's no form and no fill. That's called a vacuum. Life cannot thrive where there's darkness. And life cannot thrive where you have nothing but a chaotic, raging abyss of a sea. And so that's how the creation is described, is without the ability for life to thrive. So the minute God gets done describing that, he then says that his ruach, you've got to get the ch in there, that's Hebrew. The ruach of God was hovering over the surfaces of the water. That word is translated spirit, but it can also be wind. And that ruach is hovering over it. And what's interesting is that Hebrew word for watery abyss, tiamat, is replaced with a different word for water. It's a life-giving water. Because in the First Testament, raging water always represents chaos and sometimes evil and sin. And water, like life streams and, and springs and ponds, represent life. As the deer panteth for the stream, so I long for the word of God. And so the idea is that the Holy Spirit comes and subdues the chaos. It brings order to everything. And when it orders all the chaos into something structured, then God then speaks light, which undoes the darkness, and then he begins to form the sky, the earth, and the air, and the water, and then he begins to fill them with fish, birds, humans, and animals. And then what God is saying, unlike all the other pagan gods, I create out of order. All the pagan gods never did that. The pagan gods just took the chaos, And created out of the chaos. And they came from the chaos. And they ruled with chaos. And God says, I am not like that. And then later when the the, the flood came along, and they were so evil, God unleashed the chaotic abyss from below. And it wiped out humanity for their sin. And it turned the earth back to a formless and empty, dark water, chaotic mass. And then in chapter 8 of Genesis it says, And then the Ruach of God came, and the waters began to recede. And then we see this again when you have the chaos of Egypt coming down and barreling down on Israel as they're fleeing. And they come to the raging chaotic, uh, chaos of the sea and they're like, oh my gosh, we're hopeless. God has brought us here to kill us. We can't get through. And the Ruach of God comes and parts the Red Sea into order and structure, but then allows it to collapse upon Egypt and destroy them just like the flood. And so you see this over and over and over again. And now we have this chaos of Israel, the death, the, all these things are happening. Their confusion in their mind. And the only they remember, Peter says a lot of dumb things. A lot of times they've abandoned God, Jesus. They're not there. Da, da, and now the rock of God is going to come and bring order. And the fire of God is also another symbol. The fire of God, the first time the fire appears is a burning bush. And then it later appears as a giant pillar as they leave Egypt. And it guides them for over 700 years in Israel. And it rests on top of the tabernacle. Then later the temple. And it's called the Shekinah glory of God. The word Shekinah in Hebrew is the dwelling gl- of God. It's the dwelling glory of God. And the fire represents three things. It represents the Abrahamic covenant. Because when the Abrahamic covenant was cut, it was cut with a fire and smoke going between two animals. To bring Abraham and Yahweh together in a covenant relationship. And so when they saw the smoke at day and fire at night, back and forth, they would be constantly reminded of the covenant that they have with God. The second thing that represents is fire is always used either to judge or cleanse something. Everything is going to go through the fire. And when you go through the fire, it will either burn you up and consume you, or it will purify you, like gold or utensils and surgery or whatever. And so everything goes to the fire, so it represents The glory, or sorry, the judgment of God—it judges Egypt and condemns them, and/or it purifies you like Egypt and brings them into a new land. And the other thing that it represents is the presence of God, because it is light. And even today, with all of our science, we have no idea what light is. You talk to any quantum physicist or any scientist—we don't know what light is. We don't know how it works. We don't even know where it comes from. And what's interesting light operates differently whether you're watching it or whether you're not watching it. And that's whole other. Go look that up in a book or a science class. So um, it is a confusing unknown thing. And light has always been mysterious to us. We have no idea what fire is. We have no idea what electricity is. And so these things are mysterious and they're always fascinating. And light is the light of the world. It is the only thing that it's the thing that represents God more than anything else throughout the entire Bible. First John, God is light and in him there is no darkness. John chapter 1, the light came into the darkness and the darkness did not accept nor receive or understand the light. This is the presence of God. And so this fire comes and it's representing the presence of God is coming and it's going to subdue the chaos. And it's going to bring life and order and the presence of God. And so this is the first thing that we're introduced to here. Then we're told that this is the spirit of God, but it's also the fire. So that brings us to another thing. This fire and spirit comes, and we talked about this last week with Jeremiah 31, 31, and Joel chapter 2. And so Joel says, on that day I will pour out my spirit on all of you, young and old, rich and slave, and and, and man and woman and child and all that kind of stuff. And then in Jeremiah 31, 31, he says, "A day is coming when I will make a new covenant with you. And you will no longer need your neighbor or someone to teach you, but you will all know God. And so this is the and then, um, then um, Jeremiah, um, Ezekiel also the Valley of Dry Bones, and he talked about he said uh, Ezekiel prophesied these bones, and he says and then the Spirit of God, the Ruach of God, came and indwelled the bones and gave them life, and then God began to put muscles and skin and all that kind of stuff on them. And the idea is that God was going to resurrect Israel into something new again one day. And so the spirit is coming down upon them like everything in the first testament is prophesied. But it's coming upon them as fire too. Like the Shekinah glory of God. Little pillars of fire. So on Mount Sinai the pillar of fire after they came out of Egypt 50 days later came down on Mount Sinai And it rested upon Mount Sinai. And then God literally and verbally spoke the Ten Commandments and the need for the altar of sacrifice to them. And then they all literally and verbally spoke to God, we will follow these and do these. Now we know how that ended. Okay, and then they made a covenant with God. The fire came down on Mount Sinai. And then God used that fire to carve the Ten Commandments, into these stone tablets. And then Moses brought them down. And then that fire moved from Mount Sinai. So then God, in those 40 days, gave them instructions on how to build a tabernacle, a little mini microcosm of the Garden of Eden. And then when they were done completing it, at the very end of the book of Exodus, it says, And the Shekinah glory of God came down and entered into and on top of the tabernacle and dwelt with them. And then we're told later that the copy of the law was kept in the Ark of the Covenant in the tabernacle. This is significant. Shekinah glory of God dwelt on that tabernacle, on that Ark of the Covenant for the next 700 years. Until finally the prophets said, you've become so evil that God is going to destroy you and take you in exile. And we talked about this. And they're like, well, how could God do that? He's with us. And Ezekiel says, he's going to leave you. And the Shekinah glory of God left. And then they were destroyed. And it never came back. We talked about this last week. They rebuilt the temple about 70 years later, and the older people cried because the Shekinah glory of God never came back. And then it never came back. and never came back. And for 400 years, it never came back like God said it would. And now on Pentecost, the exact day, thousands of years earlier, when the Shekinah glory of God came down on Mount Sinai and carved the law into the Ten Commandments and rested on the tabernacle, is the exact day that the Shekinah glory of God is not resting on one tabernacle, but all of them as tabernacles. And indwelling them all. And they are the new tabernacle. Or Peter and Paul are going to say they are the new temple. First Peter chapter 2, Ephesians chapter 2, Paul says we are the house of God. He begins to indwell. And as now, the law is being carved into their hearts. And we talked about this last week. This is a fulfillment of Jeremiah 31, 31, where God says you will no longer need someone to teach you. You will all know God because you will all become the divine counsel of Yahweh. You will all have the law written on your hearts. And then the other analogy that's being made here is circumcision. This isn't obvious in Acts, but if you're connecting all the dots, it is. The sign of the Abrahamic covenant was that they all had to be circumcised. And circumcision is basically if you don't get circumcised, you're not a part of God. Well, why? Well, the male and female genitalia are the only two organs in the entire human body that produce both toxic waste and life. Now, I know there's a few exceptions to that, um, but you would have to rip somebody open to discover that, and they don't do that in the ancient world. But they're the only ones that are obvious to everyone that they produce both the seed of life for children as well as toxic waste, urine. And what God is saying is, if you're not marked by me, you produce death. But if you're marked by me, you can produce life. Moses comes along in Deuteronomy, and he says, you're wicked, hard-hearted, stiff-necked, stubborn people. And this is like his like, pep speech before they go into the promised land. <laughs> he says, you can't do it. You are evil and you're wicked. And the only thing that will give you the ability or desire to ever follow God is circumcisions of your heart. Now, he just called them hard-hearted. And he says you have to be circumcised because the heart is also the organ that metaphorically produces both life and death. From the heart we can destroy people and from the heart we can build them up. And what Moses is saying is that your heart is hard and evil and produces death. And the only thing that will give you the desire and the ability is the circumcision of your heart. And then he gives the restoration covenant. He says, one day you will go into exile because you're so bad. But one day God promises to bring you out of exile. And on that day, he will circumcise your hearts. And then Jeremiah comes along and says, your hearts need to be circumcised. And the way that they'll be circumcised is through the indwelling of the Holy Spirit who will write his law on your hearts. And now we have the Holy Spirit coming in dwelling them. And the minute it indwells them, all of a sudden they're going to have the desire and the ability to actually speak and act in the way that they were supposed to for all these years. And then when we get to Romans chapter 7 or 8, Paul is going to say, Thank God for the Holy Spirit who has made us alive. And then he'll go and talk about which is the circumcision of our heart. And this is what gives us the ability to change. And this is the only thing that gives us the ability to actually truly desire and do the right thing. Now, non-believers can say and do the right thing. But in a holistic transformation, truly loving and seeking altruistically other people and lifting them up above yourself and having a relationship with God is only possible through the Holy Spirit. This is what's happening on that day, is that they're all becoming these rooms. Another connection. I told you, Pentecost is like everything. The cross and Pentecost are like the two biggest events where all the threads are being tied together. So the other thing that's happening is in the upper room, when Jesus is speaking to them the night before their crucif- his crucifixion, in John chapter 14 through 17, he tells them that in my father's house are many rooms. And I go there to prepare a place for you. And when I come back, I will play, provide a place for you. If this were not true, I would not say so. Now, a lot of people have misunderstood this and think that he's talking about going up into heaven and like making a room for you in his giant mansion and folding down the covers and putting Andy's mint on the pillow to make a way ready for you to get to heaven one day through the cross. But you have to read the whole Gospel of John. Because in the very beginning of chapter 2, or chapter 1, it says... In the beginning was the Word, and the Word was with God, and the Word was God. And the Word was the light of all mankind. And then later it says in verse 14, And the Word became flesh, and the Word dwelt among us. But in the Greek, it's the word tabernacle. He tabernacled among us. So when he's called God, in the light of God, and he tabernacles among us, then he is the tabernacle of God which is later replaced with the temple. So we're told that by John, who's writing in the inspiration of God. Then in chapter 2, the very next chapter, Jesus says, tear down this temple, this literal physical temple that they built after the exile, and Herod flipped that temple and made it look even cooler. He says, tear down this temple, and in three days I'll rebuild it. Now the first thing he did he went in, and he says, you've turned my father's house, into a den of thieves. And he begins to overturn the tables. First thing you understand, the Jews never refer to God as Father. That's too intimate. That's too personal. God is this transcendent, divine, sovereign being, completely separate and outside of you. Now, yes, you can have a relationship with them, but not the way that we think of it, because one, they don't have the Holy Spirit, and two, the Pharisees got a little too legalistic over time. And so for, the, for Jesus to say, my father's house, it's like, oh, you can't talk that personal and intimate about him. It would be like somebody else, somebody else coming up to your spouse and then go looking at your spouse and say, hey, babe. And he'd be like, no, no, you do not talk to my spouse that way. It would be violation. It's too intimate. It's too personal. That's not appropriate. And so this is the way they view it. Not exactly, but analogies only stand on three legs. This is the idea. And so he's saying it. And so they're offended by that. But this is the key. He says, in my father's... You've turned my father's house into a den of thieves. And then he says, tear it down, in three days we'll rebuild it. And they're like, what? It took us 40 years to just like refurbish this and all that kind of stuff. And it says they did not know that he was talking about his body. So at that point... He's making clear that it's his body. So his father's house is his body. At the very end of John, he overturns the tables again and gets mad at them again. And he says, you turned my house into a den of thieves. So now he's making the direct connection that God and him are the same. And that it's his body. That is the context that you interpret John chapter 14 and 15. Because Jesus says, in my Father's house are many rooms. And I go there to prepare a place for you. Now, where is he going? All throughout John 14, 15, and 16, he keeps saying, I'm going to the cross, and then I'll come back. And when I come back, I'll give you another one. The parousia, the Holy Spirit, the one who comes along your side to go along with you. And they're like, oh, we'll go with you. He says, really? Can you go with me? Are you willing to drink the cup of wrath? and go to the cross, and die, and that kind of stuff. And over and over again, he makes it very clear that where he's going is the cross. He's not going to heaven. I'm not saying he's never going there, but he's not, that's not what he's talking about. He says, I'm going to the cross, and I'm coming back. And then I will give you another. So when he says, in my Father's house, my body, there are many rooms. I am going there, the cross, to prepare a place for you. And then another will come and be with you, and come along your side. That's what he's talking about. Why is that so significant? Because in the tabernacle and temple, there were two rooms. There was the holy place where only the priests could go, who were the firstborn of the Levite tribe, and only the Levite tribe. And the second room was the Holy of Holies, which only the high priests of the Levites, the firstborn of all firstborns, was allowed to go into one time a year, and he can only go in with the blood of a lamb, and he filled it with so much smoke from this sensor that he wouldn't even be able to see anything. And he dumped the blood on, and he backed out, and that was it. There's one room where God dwells, and that's this 15 by 15 foot by 15 foot cube. And now Jesus says, I'm going to build more rooms. I am the tabernacle. And there's not going to just be one Holy of Holies. There's going to be lots of Holy of Holies. But the only way I can do that, because you are never allowed in the Holy of Holies because of your sin. The only way I can make more rooms inside the tabernacle is if I atone for your sin. And so I'm going to the cross to prepare a place for you. And when he goes to the cross, what happens to the veil that separated them from the Holy of Holies? It tore. And that was God's way of saying Let's tear down the back wall of the house, baby. We're doing room additions because the babies are coming. Okay? And so this is what God is saying. He tore it down, and now he could res from the dead. And the first thing they see 40 days later or 50 days later is the Shekinah glory of God coming down on them and them and him and her and him and her and her and him and him and her and her. And her. And there's not just one Holy of Holies. There's now multiple Holy of Holies. And it's not just for the firstborn Levite. It's now for poor and rich and slave and free and man and woman and Jew and eventually, in chapter 10, Gentiles. And this is what Jesus is saying. This is his plan all along. And he wanted Israel to do this from the very beginning. But Israel was too stiff-necked and hard-hearted to make it happen. And so now... Christ has done what we were meant to do but could not do. And that was to atone for sins and indwell us to give us the desirability. And so we are the temple. We are the Shekinah glory of God. Or Sorry, we are the temple. We are the ark of the covenant that the Shekinah glory of God dwells in. And that's the point that he's making with all this. There's so many things going on in this tiny little paragraph. And so many themes and threads that Christ has been developing throughout all these thousands of years and through these 39 books of the First Testament are now coming together. And this is why if you're a First Testament church, or sorry, you're a New Testament church, it's really hard to see all the dots being connected because all these threads and dots are developed in the First Testament. This is where we know God. It's in the Second Testament that we see all the things get connected. So this is the idea that he's developing here. Peter will use this exact same language. And I think this is significant. Because John, who's here at Pentecost, is going to use this language and develop it in his gospel. Peter, who's here at Pentecost with the Holy Spirit, is going to use this language and develop it in 1 Peter. This is what they're seeing. This is what they're getting. And for the first time ever, dots are connecting in their head. It says they did not know what he was talking about when he meant he was talking about his body. They didn't get that. John is writing that after the Holy Spirit. Oh, I get it now. These are all the dots being connected. And what he's showing is we are the tabernacle. We are the temple. We are one of the many rooms. We are the Ark of the Covenant. We are the dwelling of God. We are the people of God. For the holy spirit we're the new israel and this is important to understand and you know what's so powerful about this you don't have to wait to go to heaven to be in that many rooms it's now the minute you accept christ and the minute the holy spirit dwells you you are in the house of god you're a part of the house of god you can talk to him yes Are you going to be more fully in the house of God and more fully in the presence of God one day? Yes, but that's the already not yet. But it's now, it's now. And the way that you need to look about it is Peter then says, heaven is not something that you'll go to one day. And don't get me wrong, it is, it is. But it doesn't begin then, someday in your future. Heaven is every single believer who accepts Christ because Peter says that Christ is the living foundational stone of the temple. And every time a Christian accepts Christ and the Spirit dwells in them, we are the living stones that are being built into it. And so every single time a believer or a human becomes a believer through the Holy Spirit, another holy of holies gets added into the temple of God, into the body of Christ. And this thing gets bigger and bigger and bigger and bigger until eventually one day Christ comes back and says, It is finished. A second time. But now it is not finished through his work's work on the cross, it is finished through the Holy Spirit's work of sanctification throughout the thousands of years that we're here. However, many more that will be here. The church is being built now, the house of God is being built now. The Kingdom of God, heaven is being built now on earth, and one day Christ will finish it, capstone it, finalize it, complete it, whatever word you want to use when he comes back, and then literally beings brings heaven to the king, to earth and literally brings the throne of God to earth and that you need to understand this if you want to get you really want to get revelation. If you really want to understand what's happening in revelation. the ultimate goal is not going to heaven, the ultimate goal is bringing heaven to earth. That's the ultimate goal. So heaven is a very real, literal place where you're very literally in the presence of God. But the goal goal is to gradually bring heaven down to earth with every new believer, and then Christ brings it completely and finally with the second coming. It's not The goal is not to go up there. Yes, in the in-between of your death and that, you will go there, but then he'll bring you back. He'll bring you back. And so this is the point that is being made here.